Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Glad to see those at home. Thanks for joining us. A um, couple of things before we jump into today. First, for those that aren't here, you can't see this, but Stephen Rungatis is here today. So good to see you, Stephen. Um, that's right. Yeah, special, special excitement. For those who don't know, Stephen and Jamie, they were been a part of our faith family really since the beginning of things um, of Christ City and a few years ago moved to the Carolinas, left us. Uh, but to fulfill their like their calling of what God has for them to help send um, men and women across the globe to to um, to share Jesus in places um, where the name of Jesus isn't known, and so uh, Stephen happens to be back for for a wedding today, so we get the privilege of worshiping with him. So man, it's good good that you're back, my friend. Glad that you're here. Um, and so um, so yeah. So speaking of being a part of um, a family that's much larger than sometimes what we see, um, um, as we've been talking about going through the seven churches in Revelation, uh, one of the things we've been doing is trying to introduce and remind us um, what we're about as a faith family, that um, being a part of the faith family is not just what happens in this place, in this context, but is about following Jesus in a way that um, stretches us, a way that challenges us, a way that also allows us to participate in the kingdom in a much broader and bigger way um, than our little family um, that's gathered here in this moment. And so last week we talked about the Anchor Collective, and this week I want to, um, for those that maybe don't know, uh, we're part of an organization called the Acts 29 Network, which is a church planning organization um, that has been going for uh, almost 15, 16 years now, um, and it is, it's, it's designed just to kind of help churches start um, and um, then help them start other churches. And so uh, we exist in a lot of the ways as a faith family because we're part of Acts 29. Um, a lot of the churches in Acts 29 supported us uh, as the Pace family uh, and our, our faith family at the very beginning of our church um, to, uh, to help us get going. Um, but the cool thing about Acts 29, whereas the Anchor Collective is what God's doing kind of right here in our city amongst different denominations and affiliations and ethnicities, um, the Acts 29 network is a global network. It's, it's something that takes place across the entire world. There's about 700 churches uh, that are part of Acts 29. Uh, and one of the ways that, um, that we participate with Acts 29 uh, is that on a quarterly basis, we come together with the global church of Acts 29 to pray together. And so um, coming up on April 27th, um, all the information is right here. It'll be in the emails the next few weeks. Um, but you can jump on a call. It's at 2 p.m. Central, so I know it might be a little weird during a work day, but even if you just pull up the Zoom uh, call while you're at work and you hear it going, you'll hear people praying in different languages. Uh, you'll get to be a part of uh, reminding ourselves that we're part of um, God's work across the globe uh, and challenging us, hopefully, for those of us here in, uh, in our own places um, to, um, to just always be cognizant that the Lord is working in ways that we can't see. Um, and really, that's what the book of Revelation is about, right? Um, if we've noticed the last um, couple of weeks as we've been in it, uh, is there's a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on in the physical church. There's a lot going on in the spiritual reality of the church. Um, and hopefully over these last few weeks, it's been really stretching for you as an individual. And I know for us as a faith family to hear Jesus pastor us, to let Jesus kind of lead us. And so um, the cool thing is, like, the pastoring of Jesus doesn't stop at the end of the letters. Like, it actually goes through the rest of the book. Even though it, it moves into more story form, um, the pastoring of Jesus continues. And so for those that are interested, um, this is kind of your last, the last call um, to be a part of um, a study to go through the rest of the book of Revelation. 
We're not going to preach through it. Um, the way it's designed and the way it's written is to be heard and to be responded to, um, to be kind of parsed and connected within community so that we can live it out. And so there's about a dozen or so people who have expressed interest about continuing it through Revelation. Uh, and so this week we're going to start putting together kind of the rhythms and pattern of that. And so if you're interested, just let me know. Uh, I'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, if you've already let me know, um, that's great. I've got your name on a list. I will, I will email you. Um, if you don't get an email by next Sunday, you can let me know uh, if I miss something. But, um, but if, if you're interested, this is kind of the last week because we're going to kind of put that group together and there will be some commitments to it in regards to reading, in regards to coming and being able to discuss and kind of parse those things out. But we'll figure all those, those kind of um, expectations together. And so, um, so this is kind of your last week. If you're interested, we want to invite you into a much um, longer study uh, through the book of Revelation so that we can actually live, live it out together. And so as you know, um, as we say every time, like what we do here in, on Sunday mornings we love, but this isn't church for us. This is coming together as a church so that we can follow Jesus outside of this place, so that we can listen to the words of Jesus this morning through the book of Revelation, uh, and therefore live like Jesus um, Monday through Saturday in life together in gospel community as uh, husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as daughters, as roommates, as co-workers, as friends, as neighbors. And so will you ask uh, with me the Holy Spirit to help us be present in this moment, to ground us in the Jesus um, that we're going to talk about, um, to set our minds' attention upon him and our hearts' affections upon him so that we follow not just our idea of Jesus, but who Jesus says he is from his scriptures. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that is new and fresh every morning. Um, that's, Lord, as, as crisp and as inviting as a morning like today is. So as we wake together, Father, Lord, into, Lord, mercies that are new, as Peter tells us, um, Lord, into patience that is longing for all to come to know and to follow and to live life in its fullness in you, um, Lord, may we be able in this time and place um, to be rooted um, and grounded in the one who sees us, the one who knows us, the one who has established his kingdom and rule forever in Jesus. Father, where we are sick and sad and lonely and broken, Father Lord, um, may your, your eyes heal us, may your vision of us, may your invasion of us, Father Lord, um, restore us. Lord, for those who are walking well and diligently, Father Lord, in love and faith and service and endurance, Father Lord, may your, um, may your scriptures, may your songs, may our communion, may our words from one another, Father Lord, um, encourage us to hold fast and steady to the things that we've clung to. Um, to the works of Jesus, to the life of Jesus. Father, we give you praise, praying that our next few moments together would be that to you, Lord, praise. All this because your sons lives. In his name we pray, amen. To help us enter into worship and to settle our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections, we've asked Lexi to come and read a psalm for us. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. 
The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Thank you, Lexi. I want to invite you to stand.
favorite place to gather together to worship you, to praise you, and to tell this wondrous story. Lord, um, be with us in the next few moments as you've promised to be, and help us recognize your presence in us, around us, and with us. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to invite Bethany to the front. She's going to lead us in a reading. You may be seated. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself, I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Bethany. Um, seems like the further we get into the letters, the little uh, the more intense they get, right? Um, throne of Satan last week, you know, at first it was false teachers, sure, whatever. Synagogue of Satan, okay, maybe we can kind of like work through, like work through that. Then throne of Satan, and now um, throwing God, Jesus throwing somebody on a sickbed, um, children dying, like it just seems like the intensity keeps ratcheting up as, as we go along. Um, and, uh, and there's a reason to that. I mean, Jesus um, revealing himself, John organizing this revelation in the story is trying to get us to move deeper and deeper into, uh, into the reality of the world that we live, to see more clearly the context in which we find ourselves and the context in which God rules and reigns. Um, to see the opposition as the opposition is um, and what the opposition is in ways that should kind of strike us in order to compel us uh, to want to hold fast to something, right? They want to grab onto something. They want to have someone persevere for us and not just think that we can on our own get through it. Ironically, um, the fourth address in the faith family, and I quote this um, uh, as a sentiment echoed across every single scholarship. All, every, everybody you look into says this. It says, Thyatira is the least important of the seven cities to which John is instructed to write. But we've kind of, if you notice, kind of been building up, right? Like Ephesus was this grand city, this grand capital. Uh, it was the church of all churches, right? Um, um, Smyrna was, if it wasn't the church of all churches, it was the place of all beauty, um, um, 
last week with uh, Pergamum. It was the throne of Satan. It was this place where really civilization began and, and kind of ruled. And so you kind of expect, you would kind of expect, at least I would think, to get to the next church is another grand place, another city in a context in a place that was, um, that was just as important. But instead, we get Thyatira. History has passed over Thyatira. In fact, history has literally been built on top of Thyatira as it's been forgotten. There's no ruins of Thyatira in any museums. Instead, you'll find scatterings across parks and vacant lots in the modern-day city of Akhisar in Turkey. I think we have a picture of it. Um, yeah, that's, that's Thyatira. That's, what's, that, that's it. You see this building's built up around it. Literally, like it's just kind of like, oh, cool, there was something here a long time ago. Um, and that's Thyatira. Unlike Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, Thyatira cannot boast of being the most influential, the most beautiful, or the most significant. It was not the leading city in politics or economics, education or culture. It did not lead in civic pride or religion or anything like it. Yet, though Thyatira could not claim top billing in any one of these areas, it was, by all accounts, a prosperous city. So while it wasn't important, it was comfortable. It was a good city. It was a city with plenty of jobs, plenty of space, and plenty of stability. A city organized geographically and socially around business, around the everyday affairs of life, of making a living, and living out of your abilities, crafts, and all those kind of things. Located along multiple trade routes, Thyatira was home to a host of artisans and industries, from bakers and painters to tanners and potters, to workers in wool and linen and metal, chiefly copper, it was the home of Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth worn by royals and the wealthy. The same Lydia who moved to Philippi where she met Paul and became an apprentice of Jesus, which Luke recounts for us in Luke 16. Because it was a trade city, Thyatira became known for its many trade guilds or trade unions, uh, networking groups. It, these groups shaped the city's economic and social life. Different guilds control different squares. I think there's a, um, a slide for, yeah. So this, is, this isn't an exact image of Thyatira, but it's kind of the idea. Like each little square pocket was its own little industry. And the guild would control each little part of town, little segment of town here, right? So like all the different people who were selling wool would congregate in this area and sell wool in this area and all that kind of stuff, so on and so forth with each different craft and, and stuff. But the whole idea was that these city districts or squares um, provided associations for mutual profit as well as a social fabric in which the artisans were able to live. A social fabric that weaved each group together. Most of these trade guilds paid homage to the city gods, Apollos and Artemis, who along with Caesar was marked as the sons of Zeus on the local coinage. Again, I think we have a picture of it. Like any good networking group, these guilds were not all business, but also communal, throwing parties and festivals to honor their trade and the gods of their craft. While our modern minds picture debaucherous pagan parties in which every participant caught up in the gyrations of cultic worship is partaking in every form of lustful and twisted perversion and gratification, um, the historical data suggests a much more mild picture, a little more like happy hour, um, 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 with a few, a few things added on to it. Indeed, there was honor was paid to the divines for the industry's prosperity, and the unused parts, usually um, the good parts of sacrificial offerings, were made a delicious part of the meal together. Still, the parties were focused as much on social business as they were on spiritual realities. Of course, as we all know, a work party or conference even today can quickly degenerate. <laughs> and Thyatira can be sure, um, um, uh, we can be sure had its own fair share of parties that went too far. 
Yet regardless of the level of debauchery, the collusion of faith and work and friends, the collusion of faith and work and friends, made participation in the guilds a rather delicate subject for the first century Jesus followers. Community and work melded together in Thyatira. And the separation of people from profit began to blur. Right? They, they, they segmented in, in these groups. And at the same time, they melded all their life together into these groups. And so, as we'll see as we go, that created some issue for Jesus followers. Though the trade guilds were not obligatory, writes commentator Grant Osborne, few workers failed to belong, for the guilds were centers of social life as well as commerce. Both physically and sociologically, the guilds were at the heart of civic life, and their feasts were at the heart of the social and commercial life of the city. To refuse to participate meant the loss of both goodwill and business, and certainly a much harder go at prosperity. So, while there was, as we can tell in history, no threat of persecution hanging over the Thyatiran church, unlike the other cities that we've looked at, there's no, there's no group that's trying to, to crush them and destroy them um, politically or socially. Um, there was, however, the issue of living like Jesus in their everyday roles and relationships. What would it look like to follow Jesus' way amid the way of work and community so tightly formed in this ordinary, prosperous city? Stuck in a reasonably good city with a sufficiently good economy, the faith family of Thyatira had to navigate fidelity to the way of Jesus amid the economic and social constructs of ordinary life, which sounds a lot like us, right? Jesus makes his fourth address to this group, a community of amalgamation of, of men and women uh, from all across these segmented groups coming together to follow Jesus, a faith family living enmeshed in the city's economic and social structures and under the spirit of their cultural moment, trying to live amid one kingdom while loyal to another kingdom. So this particular faith family in the most ordinary city is the least, in the least significant city of the seven, Jesus writes his most lengthy correspondence. This is the longest of Jesus' letters. Again, we would think, logically, the most important city would have the longest letter, the most important church would have the longest, the longest letter, or maybe the most, um, the most Eden-like place, the most heavenly-like place would have a super long letter, or maybe the most dangerous place, the most satanic place, but rather we get the least significant and most ordinary place has the longest letter. So let's see what the letter says. It begins, as all the letters do, to the angel of the third church of Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, I'll say it one more time, but Jesus' addresses always begin by acknowledging the complex reality of the church's existence. The church is both the seen people and the unseen spirit or angel, right? The church is never just what we see, and neither are the constructs of our everyday life. Neither are the communal constructs, the societal constructs, economic constructs of our life are never merely what they are, see, what we see. Even in the ordinary locale of Thyatira, there is more going on than our eyes can see. Luckily for the church, Jesus' eyes penetrate much deeper than our perceptions, right? His eyes are aflame. We'll talk about that in a minute. Again, Jesus always introduces himself with a description from chapter 1's vision that most suits the situation of that specific faith family at the time. No church represents Jesus fully, yet every church is represented by Jesus perfectly for their time and place. And in this case, we have um, a reference back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. 
where it says, His eyes, talking about Jesus, were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now, to pick up and understand the relevance of Jesus' context to the faith family, we need to, to connect a few dots. Uh, we need a few dots connected that would have been more familiar uh, to passages and pictures for the first century Christian, especially those coming out of um, a God-fearing kind of Jewish background. And the first thing we notice about Jesus' self-description is that he adds to the image in chapter 1. Right? We just read the image in chapter 1. Flaming eyes, bronze feet. But the image in chapter 2 says he is the Son of God. That's what he starts out with. Now we read and hear this title and glance right over it, right? It's a common title for us to refer to Jesus in this way. But Jesus does not call himself the Son of God in any other place in the Revelation except for here. And that matters. The Son of Man, he calls himself over and over again, for that is the most common self-reference of Jesus, both in the Gospels and in the Revelation. But he doesn't call himself the Son of God. So, we know from this that perhaps Jesus wants us to pick up on the uniqueness of the title, so that we won't remember where we heard it before. Does anybody remember where we heard it before? It's okay if you don't. Most of us don't. So because most of us don't, let me tell you where it comes from before. It comes from Psalm chapter 2. And as we read Psalm chapter 2 together, I want you to notice that not only is the title come from Psalm chapter 2, but the ideas and images and some of the words verbatim are repeated throughout the letter to Thyatira. Jesus' letter to Thyatira. This psalm matters a whole lot to this letter. And it starts this way. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's what the psalmist says. Why does life with God sometimes feel like a battle? Why does God's kingdom feel like it's at war with other kingdoms? That's what, that's what the psalmist is asking. The kings of the earth, that is, people with authority over the nations, the kingdoms, and the cities, and the seen realm of reality, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. They don't just set themselves up as rulers, but they take counsel together for what? To be against the Lord and against his anointed. Opposition is a theme in all the letters. There is always something in someone not just doing things differently, but actively in opposition to the ways of Jesus. That's important for us to note, right? It's not that we just live in a context in which things are different. We live in a context in which there is opposition to the kingdom of God that we live in. And this opposition, these ones that set themselves against the anointed, say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do they want? They want to be free, to be unbound by God, to pursue what they desire and how they desire to gain it. And again, this is the common issue throughout all the churches. Every letter we've seen, that this is a constant theme. To live life without God, or to get what God has out of life in a way other than God's way. To have a kingdom without a king. To have our kingdom, but not God's king. And then the psalmist continues, he says, He who sits in the heavens, that is, who is above and operates in the unseen realm of reality, he laughs. He laughs at this idea. The Lord holds him in derision. Do we think that life on our own would be better? Do we think that, that we could actually win in a kingdom battle? Or that the world could win, the other kingdom could win? He laughs. For it's like children trying to fight a parent. <laughs> then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on the Zion, my holy hill. There is a king of kings, God's king, and who is he? The psalmist continues, he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. This is the king. This is the son of God. My son. God's son. My son. Son of God. 
This is the king. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. That is your inheritance. Under your authority and rule and care, which has been God's intention from Genesis 11. Like, this is what God intended to do when he separated out and divided up all the nations into different languages. Is to create an, an inheritance that would, that would be the ones who reclaimed all the nations to be a part of his kingdom. And the ends of the earth, his possession. Again, for this is God's intent for blessing the nations. You shall shepherd, the psalmist continues. Some translations say break or rule. That's what, that's what the, the, um, the ESV translates it into in Revelation 2. You shall shepherd them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Repent. This is what the psalmist says. Repent. God always gives an opportunity for repentance, for warning and wisdom to be heralded and honored, but also refused, as Jesus did Jezebel in today's letter that Bethany read for us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Whose Son? God's Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way. That is, you die in your sickness, literal translation, as Jezebel and her followers' children do. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm sets up everything that's going to follow out of um, uh, this letter to Thyatira. Jesus' self-description as the Son of God, linking us back into Psalm 2, is the image of a king of kings claiming his heritage, the nations, peoples, and structures in the earth, places as his own to rule, to shepherd them in a way that breaks their rebellion and protects what is his. So in a world, ironically, again, in a world where it seemed like all the visible um, constraints of worldly rule were just kind of ordinary. Like there wasn't the, it, this wasn't the center of, of Roman rule. This wasn't the center of pagan worship. Um, Thyatira wasn't the center of, um, of, of, of um, you know, some sort of economic like, um, thing that you bow down to. It was just a normal prosperous city. And yet this is the city that Jesus decides to make himself known as the king of kings. The one who's come to put everything under his feet. To protect all that is his. In a city where the coinage depicted the sons of Zeus, the divine Apollos, and the rule of Caesar as sons of God, kings of trade, of business, and of community, of people, Jesus is the son of God. The son of God. The son of the God. King of kings coming to claim his heritage, his kingdom, which encompasses all kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom encompasses all kingdoms. That's what the Son of God means. That's the first word he says to them. But he doesn't, go, he doesn't just say he's the king of kings. He goes on to describe what the king of kings does. The second part of the description says Jesus has eyes full of flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Here we're taken back to a professional prophet, Jeremiah, and a lay prophet, Daniel. Both prophets, one speaking to the people of God and their abandoning of God's ways as a pastor priest, and the other speaking as a civic leader and priest to a nation that is, at its best was apathetic towards Israel's God and at times in direct opposition to it. First to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17 says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Where is their sin? Well, I'm sure there are actions of sin. The home of sin, the stronghold of sin is the heart. And on their horns, horns might for us sound strange, but it simply is a way to describe power. 
power through works, power through ability to do things, horns. And where are these horns? Horns of their altars, that is, the unseen spiritual forces whom they are following. So where does sin lie? It lies in the heart. It lies in these forces and realities that are in opposition to God, the altars. While their children, those who submit to their authority, remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. That is, their children, those that are led to worship God apart from them, are led there because of the sin of their own hearts in collusion with the sin of their altars, right? That those things are synced up and melded together in a way to lead them to follow a way of life that's against God's way of life. And for that, God says, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. What you wanted to gain, in other words, through these practices will be taken away in hard times. Tribulation will befall you. The same thing that Jesus says in um, chapter 2. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage. Now there's the word again. But it's not just God's anointed that has heritage. Now he's talking to God's people. Do you notice that? It's their legacy, your heritage. His people, God's people, are been to inherit the same heritage as God's anointed. The word spoken to the king of kings is assumed to also be for God's people. They too were meant to partake and participate in that heritage, in that kingdom rule. So when Jesus says at the back end of the letter to Thyatira that he blesses them, he promises them the ability to rule with authority over the nations, he's not saying anything different than what God has said from the very beginning. That we're meant to be partakers in God's kingdom, rulers within God's kingdom. That's our heritage for those who are God's people. And it's not a heritage that we earned. It's a heritage given to us. That's what um, Jeremiah says, that I gave you, that God gave you. And I'll make you serve your enemies in a land that you did not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So what's ultimately the issue in Jeremiah? What's ultimately the issue in Thyatira? This is what Jeremiah says. He says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's the same thing as Psalm 2. It's wanting to live life, God's life, the kingdom life, get everything out of it without God being king. Our own way. But it's through an amalgamation, a marrying, as we'll see, of of different things. For the one who does this is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So what's the solution? If we don't want this life of death and a life that shrivels and a life that, 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 uh, that makes us give up all that we've been created to inherit, what's the solution? Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear what, what heat comes, for it is, its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The people of Tyre, like us often, um, don't trust that following God's way, the way of Jesus, will get them what they want and what they need. They think that in order to live, they must live within the structures and spirit that their cultural moment makes available. Just like the people in Jeremiah's day. Seeking first not God's kingdom and his righteousness, but the basics and pleasures of life. Which, by the way, God says he gives. And again, where does the issue reside? Jeremiah concludes, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things. The issue resides in our heart. And is desperately sick. 
If you remember what Bethany read for us in, in, um, in chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, you should probably be in there um, as I'm going kind of back and forth by now. Um, but verse, verse 22 and 23, it says to the, to the Jezebel character um, that Jesus will throw her onto her a sickbed. And what is this sickbed, this desperate sickness? It's the source of the sickness is not God, but the heart, right? He throws her back onto her own heart, to the things that she desires, to the things that she longs for, to the sickness that draws her away from and out of life. But who can understand this? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There is no being self deceived in relation to God. That's what Jesus' flaming eyes means. He searches the heart. He tests the mind. That's exact. Um, again, uh, Jesus quotes that in, um, in the letter in verse 24. There's no being self-deceived in relation to God. No infection that won't be exposed. No way of living that won't prove whose way you are following. No walking the wrong way in which you won't be encouraged to turn around. Right? Sometimes we fear that exposure. But already the exposure, we've already been told that God always gives an opportunity to repent, to return. We see it in the letter to Jesus. Jeremiah continues, he says, Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets rich, but not by justice, in the midst of his days. They will leave him, and at, the, at his end will be a fool. Listen, you get what it is that is inevitable in the way that you choose, in opposition to God's way. If you're choosing to follow a way other than God's way, inevitably it concludes... As we've known, as we've testified, it doesn't end well, right? It ended in death in Genesis 3, a casting out of the, from the kingdom. It ends in sickness and destruction. It ends in foolishness, as Psalm 2 reminds us. But listen, the glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Again, those who do trust in the Lord get to rule, take part in the inheritance of God's kingdom. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, that is, they shall die. Well, what have we already learned in the Revelation? That we don't fear the second death, that we don't need to fear death, that death isn't the thing that we fear, because we have life forever. But those who turn away fear death. Those who turn away get what it is that they long for, what they're striving after, which ultimately is their own end. For they have forsaken the Lord, the the fountain of living water. So Jesus having eyes of flame means he penetrates to the home of our issue and transforms it. Eugene Peterson says it this way. Holiness gets inside of us. And when it gets inside of us, it changes us. Christ's gaze penetrates and purifies. That's what a flaming eye means. That's what the eyes of flame means. He doesn't look at us. Jesus doesn't just look at us. He looks into us. The king of kings doesn't just see us, he sees into us. We are not a spectacle to Christ, trying to play some sort of game to get all of our works right, to get everything right, so that, so that if we get our outside right, that, our, that we'll get what it is that we want. But instead, we are invaded by Christ. He doesn't just look at us to laugh at us, to, um, to play a game with us. This life of faith isn't something that... that um, um, in his kingdom isn't something that he's like a king sitting up just laughing at everybody running around doing his will. He actually invades us as the one who has eyes that are aflame. And to be invaded by Jesus is to be consumed by him, as the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 12 it says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's scary to a lot of us, I think. Revelation is scary to a lot of us, I think. Um, but George McDonald once said of this subject, it is not that the fire will burn us if we do not worship, but the fire will burn us until we worship. Yea, it will go on burning within us after all that is foreign to it has yielded to its force, no longer with pain and consuming, but as the highest consciousness of life, the presence of God. Jesus searches our hearts and minds until we can live like him in the relational authority over the world he has made for us to live in. To live and move and have our being in as he does. To be, as Paul says, ones who, whose, whose lives are transformed because they are an act of worship, because God has penetrated us, because Jesus sees us and knows us and refines us so we might actually live fully into who we are. This is what the King of Kings does. He doesn't use us. He doesn't play with us. He transforms us. He knows us so that we might be ones who can live well. Two passages in Daniel help us to recognize this graciousness of Jesus' x-ray ruling. The first is Daniel 2, where Daniel is describing and then interpreting a dream, a dream from Nebuchadnezzar, the earthly ruler of a kingdom opposed to God's people in his rule, right? Notice the description of the great image and how it differs from the image of Jesus. And take note of why it matters. In Daniel chapter 2, it says this, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. There's this intimidating picture, right? Before Nebuchadnezzar, this, this intimidating image that would strike fear into anyone of like, this is a powerful reality that he's a part of. But notice that after describing all these strong, fine, precious metals, it says this, its feet Partly of iron and partly of clay. Versus the bronze feet of Jesus. And that matters because bronze is a mixture of iron and copper, not iron and clay. We'll talk a little bit about more about that in a second. And as you looked, talking again, Dana, talking to Nebuchadnezzar, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Where was the... Where was the image, this great image, weak? At its base, its foundation. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck that image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone, which was not made of human hands, proved to be both stronger and larger and more magnificent than the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And, get this, it also proved to be the source of the great image's downfall. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and clay, Daniel says, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. That's the kingdom that we live in. The reality that we see, the world that we experience, is partly strong and partly brittle. There is no denying the mixed kingdom has its apparent streaks and advantages but it's brittle. Its foundations aren't sure. It won't stand. As you saw, Daniel says, the iron mixed with soft clay so they will mix with one another in marriage. We'll come back to that in just a second because it's really important to understanding the Jezebel story. But they will not hold together. This marriage won't last. 
just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the kings, Daniel says, the God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. God's kingdom won't be destroyed. It won't be overcome by the great images, by the things that we see, by the world that we experience. The world that we experience at its worst won't overcome God's kingdom. The world that we experience at its worst won't end up ruling the world. God's people will rule the world. The world that we see shall break in pieces. All the kingdoms will bring them to the end, and it shall, God's kingdom will stand forever. There will be a breaking in order to rule so that the goodness of God's kingdom should fill the earth. God breaks in order to build back up. That's what God does. That's what the king of kings does. And this mixture of iron and clay cannot hold but bronze, the mixture of iron and copper. Again, a, 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 um, a metal found throughout Thyatira, kind of common to Thyatira. So Jesus is speaking to a people who would understand what he's talking about when he says bronze. It's a sure metal. To a city kingdom that is by all appearances stable, Jesus is the one who reveals their instability and establishes a firm base. To a people who have, have kind of life under control who life seems rather prosperous, rather simple, rather straightforward, where work and life and business all mix together in a way that seems pretty straightforward, pretty easy to get in and be a part of. Jesus shows them that their foundation is unstable. But there is a firm base, and the firm base is his. As Eugene Peterson again describes, he says, iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper won't rust, but is pliable. Combine the two in bronze, and the best quality of each is preserved. The strength of iron and the endurance of the copper. The rule of Christ is set on this base, on strength and endurance. The foundation of his power, Jesus' power, has been tested by fire. It will not only last, but it will overcome. That's the reality of Jesus as he describes himself. He describes himself as the king of kings who sees the heart who calls out of, goes to the very place of sin, the melding of our hearts with the realities, the spiritual realities of our moment. He refines them, purifies them, not to consume us and destroy us, but so that we might actually be who we've meant to be, His creation, that we might be holy as He is holy. We might share in the reign that we've been given. And He places His kingdom right in the midst of the world that we live, and despite what is seen around us, that is shakable and will pass. His way is firm and everlasting. And one final passage, and I know this is a lot, but let me get to this, in Daniel 10, combines the two features and tells us why Jesus is describing himself this way. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. He was mourning because of the difficulty and lengthiness of being in one kingdom and loyal to another. He was in the middle of Babylon. He was in the middle of a world that, that seemed to, to be in opposition to the kingdom in which he held so dear. And he discovered, he longed for God's restoration and knew that it would not be soon. He wanted to see God's kingdom restored in full and whole again. And he didn't know that it, if it would happen and how it happened. And so he's mourning. He said, I ate no delicacies, nor meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the three full weeks. And on the 24th day of the fourth month, as I was standing on the bank of the river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold and uphaz, 
around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, the th- Jesus of Thyatira, right? And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a tan touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he was intimidated by the image that he saw, right? But, the, but he, the image that he saw, said to me, O oh, Daniel, a man greatly loved. How amazing is that? To hear from this image of Jesus, not just don't fear the first words, but O oh, Daniel, a man greatly loved. Loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have, set, I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken the word to me, I stood up trembling. Noticing that he was still trembling, this Jesus image says to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God. The first day. The first day. Your heart was turned towards me. Your words have been heard. And I am come because of your words. I have come because your heart is after mine. Because they saw Jesus, were humbled and hungry for the rule and reign of Jesus, his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is how Jesus reveals himself to the men and women of Thyatira, the Son of God with eyes of flame and feet firmly established in this world. And we know that they were hungry for God's kingdom like Daniel from the very way Jesus encourages them. Verse, verse 19 says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Listen, Jesus one of the amazing things about these texts is, right, Jesus is thoroughly acquainted with the labors of, and love of the believers in Thyatira and all these cities, right? He, he, is, he knows them well. It's not just general, but he's thoroughly acquainted with it. He's thoroughly acquainted with the way that the, 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 um, the, the men and women of Thyatira show their love for God and love for their neighbors. Their works are these four things. Their works are love. Their works are faith. Their works are service. And their works are endurance. Now, we typically only classify service as work, right? We think about work and faith. We tend to, to create this dichotomy in which we live. Like, faith is over here and work is over here. And yet Jesus says, no, your work is love and faith, service and endurance. Because Jesus knows that loving as he loves and holding fast to faith in God's rule and purposes when it would be easy to grab onto something else is no idle task, right? It does take work. It is effort. It requires something of us. The Christian in Thyatira contends commentators Kistemaker and Hendrickson visibly demonstrated love to their neighbors and faith and trust in God. And so they were blessed as Jeremiah 17 contends that the person who trusts God are blessed. Their service to others and their quiet endurance were exemplary in the face of hardship and opposition. And James, Jesus' brother, calls loving God and loving neighbors a royal law. He says if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. <laughs> you're doing well. And now we read this like, oh, you're doing well. Like, no, no, like, like, this is like a, a Hebrew talking. This is an East, a, a Middle Easterner talking. To, to use this kind of language is a, big, is a big thing, right? To say you're doing well means you've got it. You're figuring it out. The men and women of Thyatira are doing well. They are acting royally. They are taking part in their inheritance by participating in Jesus' kingdom in the midst of another kingdom already. And they were not merely sharing in Jesus' work and witness, they were growing and maturing in it. And 
They are growing and maturing and following Jesus. The church could receive no greater praise than that given in the words, your last works are greater than your first. This means that their works of love, faith, servants, and endurance were constantly increasing. How amazing is that? Jesus is saying, you got it. You figured it out. This is what, this is what you're meant to be. This is the life you're meant to live. And Peter says it this way, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're being effective and fruitful. Unlike Ephesus, who who stagnated because they lost their first love, the women and men of Thyatira were becoming more and more like Jesus in their works. They looked and lived more like Jesus. They let their faith shape their everyday living with God and one another in their ordinary and everyday roles and relationships. They looked more like Jesus in their community, in their city, in their jobs, even if it felt difficult, even if they were pressed, even if they didn't feel like they were overcoming. Jesus says, you've got it. You're actually doing well, and you're growing. What higher compliment could we receive from Jesus? Could they receive from Jesus? And still, Jesus has something against them. None of us, even the mature and maturing, are ever without the need for a heart check. For there is always something going on in and around us that we cannot see, but Jesus can. And so he admonishes them. In verse 20, it says, But I have this against you. You tolerate, and I know this is going to sound weird, but hang with me for a second. You tolerate your wife Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is teaching and deceiving my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, again, there's a lot going on here, uh, especially in this chunk of the letter, and more than we'll have time to parse out, but I just want to say quickly a couple things to help us as we meditate and enter into this text outside of this. First, just like in his last address, where the real-time troublemakers were within the community of faith, they were described in a way to reference an Old Testament story so that, in, um, so that the people can kind of get an idea of what's happening from what was happening in the Old Testament story. Not to say that the same thing was happening, but to help us kind of understand and get a picture of what, it, what was happening because of that Old Testament story. The thing, same thing is happening here. Insiders within the community are compared to outsiders in the Old Testament to help us see what is happening within the church family. Second, that means there's probably no literal Jezebel. It's not likely that the leader of this group was a woman, though that wouldn't be impossible, for women prophets were not unusual in the church in the first century. The, the ESV translates the word prophetess um, uh, in verse 20, but the Greek like, uses the, the feminine and masculine uh, words for Greek for prophet. They don't have anything to do with the actual gender of the prophet. It's just how it's used in the syntax of the sentence. So like, she would just be a prophet. That would just be normal. She's one who's, who's claiming to speak on behalf of God. This person, whoever it is, they're, they're claiming to be a messenger of God. Third, and probably most apparent to you, is that the phrase which in most of our English translation reads, that woman Jezebel, is most accurately translated, your wife Jezebel. And again, this phrasing would help the hearer connect the dots back to the actual Jezebel, who was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. She was married, Jezebel, the real Jezebel in the Old Testament, was married to the earthly royal, an earthly royal meant to act royally on behalf of God because he had been given authority by God as Israel's king for the sake of the nations. He was one in line with the inheritance as one of God's kings to rule on God's behalf and to act royally. The very thing that Thyatirans are praised for doing, Ahab was meant to do. And the Thyatirans were acting royally like Ahab was meant to act. 
But like Ahab, they too were being incited by their wife Jezebel, someone they had entered a union with, an insider to mix kingdoms, to blend loyalties. Like Ahab, they, were ultimately, they, were, they would ultimately be led to serve two masters. As Jesus said, that never works out well. That's what Jezebel does. She influences Ahab in a way, not because, not because Ahab wasn't culp- culpable for it. Remember, the heart isn't just in the adversary. The, the, the place of sin isn't just the adversary. It's also in our heart. And Ahab's heart was very much bent towards, towards, the, towards another kingdom, to having his own way. And what happens in this story is that the God's kingdom becomes split. And listen, I think it's important that Jezebel, the original Jezebel, the Old Testament, uh, was the princess of Sidon. And Sidon is a place and a people whose lineage traces back to the Canaanite peoples who were in collaboration with the divine beings that were in opposition to God's rule. The very ones whom the psalmist says were trying to take off his yoke. So Ahab, the one ruling on God's behalf, joins himself to a person and people who are not just into their own truth or living a different way in some neutral kind of idea, but who were active in opposition to the one who gave Ahab his position. And Jezebel was no dummy. She knew, as did Balak and Balaam, that the way to overthrow God's kingdom, that is, the way to keep their kingdom and expand their their authority and control and rule, was not by direct force, but by subduction and deception. In Jezebel's case, she would suggest to Ahab, just build a little altar here. Let her priests and prophets, which she had about 850 or so, by the way, mingle with yours. Let them get together. We're all after the same thing. There's two kingdoms. We're married together. Let's come together in this. Let's bring these things together. So there's something maybe even deeper and more full in spirituality and in life if we come together. That is, until she had twisted the heart of Ahab and Israel into such a way they gave her the authority and the gall to go directly at the prophets of God. She killed a hundred of them. She tried to kill more than that, but Elijah stood up against her. So through marriage, as Daniel referenced, the kingdoms mixed. And once they mixed, there was no foundation to stand on. And it's no foundation for God's people to stand on. Not the kingdom outside of God's people. That already had no foundation. Those, those things that we see will crumble away because people had no foundation. And it ultimately ended up losing their kingdom, losing their place, their Jerusalem and their city and all the things that they desired. There's no indication that Jezebel was a harlot or even promiscuous in the Old Testament. While ancient religious worship often had, at least for some, a sexual layer, the inclusion of it was to point to the union of physicality and spirituality the joining together of body and soul with the divine or the spirit. And throughout most of our scripture, the concept of spiritual and physical union in this way sometimes practiced, some term sexual immorality or an idol worship was metaphorical. It's a metaphor for adultery um, uh, in the spiritual sense, the idea of cheating on God with other gods, other ways. In other words, the people of Thyatira were being led to submit themselves to an authority and leadership of something or someone less than God. And this is manifested in the way they related to others through her works, not Jesus' works. Listen, again, go back to, to Revelation 2 in verse um, uh, 22. Uh, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. We've already talked a little bit about what that means. She'll be given over to the disease of sin, right? And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of what? Of her works. 
Jesus' works have already been laid out. Love, faith, service, and endurance. So her works are a way of relating to people and to God that is contrary to that. That is different than that. That is other than that. Unlike the way they were relating to God and others in the way of Jesus. Relating to God in other ways through Jezebel. They were denying God. They were using others for pleasure, for gratification, for identity. That's what sexual immorality is. God shows his patience by revealing himself. And thus the people's hearts aligned with a similar spirit to Jezebel's so that they might repent. They might turn again from her works. But they don't. They ignore. And listen, the issue in Thyatira is not so different from the issues in the other cities that we've looked at. An accommodation of the way and works of Jesus. A life that looked like the life of Jesus that Jesus both taught and lived for us. An accommodation of that way with the way of the cultural moment. And again, notice that it's not that the people who are the enemy, though they suffer the same fate as the one they follow, but the force behind their issue and the entanglement, the impurity of their hearts and minds is the enemy. But there is a difference in Thyatira. And I think it matters. In fact, it's two differences. One, they tolerated this teaching, which is called deception. Um, by the way, the, the, the idea of the church being deceived is, is nowhere else in the, the rest of Revelation. Um, every other form of deception is the idea that people outside of the church are deceived. But here, saying those within are being deceived by Jezebel, this character, right, this thing that's happening within their midst. The Greek word used for tolerate is more robust than what we initially hear. Like we think, oh, okay, they just kind of, they kind of let it happen. But the idea is akin to a passive affirmation. They are allowing something to happen out of laziness or an unwillingness to stop it. The issue, the heart, and unseen forces that are coming together exist because they let it exist in their midst. Because they're not actively in opposition to it. And part of the reason may be for the second difference. Verse, verse 24 and 25 says, But the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, this again is kind of like what Jesus did um, uh, to the letter of Smyrna where he says, the synagogue of Satan. It's a tongue-in-cheek thing. It's an ironic thing. It's not that the people were calling. It's not that the Jezebel characters and the people wrapped up in it were calling the things the deep things of Satan. They were calling it the deep things of God. But the reality is that they were leading, um, talking about things that were actually following their father Satan. Like the synagogue of Satan, right? While the Nicolaitans in Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum were a group that leveraged freedom as their means for accommodating to the culture, the group in Thyatira were lever leveraging the deep things of God, which were, again, actually of Satan, to deceive. In other words, they were leveraging the maturity and maturing of the Thyatirans against them. They claimed in some way that there was more than the way of Jesus. There was something deeper, more profitable, more practical, more effective than the ways of God that would free them to live well in the world that they need to discover. That if they could just get, like Jesus' way is great, but it's just the beginning. There's more. There's something deeper and further that God wants for you. And if you just go and get that, then you'll have the life that God really wants for you. The Jesus way was just the beginning. Again, instead of being the beginning, the middle, and the end. Yet Jesus says, again, go back to verse 25. He says, To you I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus says it's enough. 
My way is enough. The way I've given you to live with one another, to love, faith, service, and endurance is enough. You maturing in that is enough. You don't need anything more. And we'll end with this quickly. To encourage them that they don't need more, Jesus promises them two things. But notice this before his promise in verse 26. For the first time in all the letters, Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't, he, he doesn't just say um, to the one who conquers and then gives the promise. He says to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Again, he's, he's trying to help the Thyatirans come back into holding fast to what he's already given them, to what's already happened in their midst. Don't give up on it. Don't look for more of it. Keep at it. That's what he's trying to tell the Thyatirans to do. Who keep my works to the end. To these things, he's, he promises authority over the nations. To have authority over the nations, to rule in God's kingdom in the same manner in which Jesus rules, which was through the power of God's Spirit, in submission to the Father's will, and through the loving acts of sacrifice of his life for those who even hated him, who rejected him, and would rather live their lives apart from him. And so when it says that he will shepherd or rule them with a rod of iron, is, is with earthen vessel pots broken in pieces, in the same manner I have received authority from my Father. We don't get to rule in a way different than Jesus rules. We don't get to have authority and in a way different than Jesus has authority. And how does he have authority? Again, submission to the Father's will, empowerment of the Spirit, a life lived with a loving sacrifice for those who even hated him and would rather live apart from him. That's why Jesus says the one who conquers is the one who keeps his work until the end. The work of love and faith, of service and endurance, who hold fast to this, who hold fast to being with Jesus, being like Jesus and doing what Jesus did until he is here again. The way of Jesus is the way that lasts, and it's proven. It's proven over time. It's proven forever. But not only will he give them authority, he will also give them the morning star. The morning star, which is another way of saying that they will be lifted above those trying to rule now. It's an ironic statement that actually casts them in contradiction to the, to the ways and the things of the, their hearts and the spiritual realities that are leading them to try to live differently. It's the idea that um, um, it comes in a couple different places, but, but the most prominent one is in Isaiah and in Numbers 24, um, in which um, the enemy is called the morning star, the, the devil, like he's, he, Lucifer falls as the morning star. And so what position he had, what, what he longed for to rule over humanity, humanity now rules over, over him, right? It's also in Numbers 24 where we saw last week where um, uh, Balaam, uh, in an attempt to being paid to, being, to curse Israel, instead blesses them and says that they will rule with the morning star, they will be one with the morning star. And so the irony of this statement, of this promise, is that the very things that the world wants, you get in Jesus, that he gives to you. So don't give up. And don't give in. The very thing that the world wants, we get in Jesus. So don't give up and don't give in. Love, have faith, serve, and endure. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, um, I know today was a lot of 
information, a lot of moving parts, a lot of pieces. Um, But I pray that as we walk out of this place, as we enter right in this moment into a response through song and communion and words of encouragement and exhortation, um, that we all see Jesus as as he is, King of kings, who knows us, who at times, Lord, draws out of us all that keeps us from experiencing union and communion with you, the life that you've created for us. Jesus, who's established his kingdom in the midst of our worlds, who if we don't give up hope, Father, Lord, that we won't, Lord, if we don't give up hope, we'll get to experience the fullness of Help us, Lord. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.
guys can be seated. All right, um, I'm Chris Reed. For those of you who don't know, um, and as we've been doing for uh, this entire series through Revelation, um, uh, we've been having different uh, people from our faith family come and share a little bit about what they have meditated on and, and received from Jesus for our church, for, for our body. So um, this week I have been meditating um, on uh, these letters, and particularly the letters uh, to the church in Thyatira, uh, just seeking the Lord on behalf of Christ City. And so I was going to share with you just a, a few things uh, quickly uh, that I've heard some encouragement and a challenge um, uh, that I believe that uh, Christ has for our faith family. Um, and just uh, quickly as an aside, um, it's been a real blessing and honor to do this this week. Um, and so I strongly encourage you, um, if you are asked, if you get an opportunity to do something like this, maybe you think, oh, I don't speak well, or um, I'm not a good writer, or something. There are many ways that we do this. We've got Monday Psalms. We've got, uh, I think we've got a podcast that Chaz and some few others lead. Um, and then we have some opportunities like this. Um, I, I really do encourage you. I think this is it's a a great thing that our body does. Um, uh, it's been an honor to seek and petition the Lord for our faith family. And there's something that you that just warms your soul. Um, and then I think for the broader faith family, uh, we are better off um, hearing from the diverse group of people and not just from a few of us. So uh, that's just, that's totally, maybe not totally unrelated, but just something I got from this week was just how wonderful it was to do this. Um, but specifically what I heard uh, from uh, from the Lord regarding uh these letters, um, just in an encouragement, and I think a lot of it, although I was outside for most of it, I think some of this came across in Jeremy's message, um, just uh, that Jesus, he knows us. If you look at every single letter, what is the beginning outside of, he starts off, you know, some characteristic about Jesus, but then it's, I know you, I know where you, I know your works, I know where you dwell, and I think that there is some, whoo, there's a little bit maybe a little bit scary, but I think that there's a comfort in, like, Jesus knows us. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets straight to the point about our character and, and, and what he knows of us. And I believe, uh, as an encouragement, I believe that what he knows about uh, the faith family here at Christ City is that um, uh, our works are exceeding, the, the latter works exceed the first. So we have improved that there are things that we are doing as a body that our works are getting mo us more and more close uh, to the heart and, and mind of Christ. Um, I, I've seen this. We've been here three, three and a half years. Um, and just, uh, I've seen, I mean, without going through every list, there are just tons of uh, works of, um, of the Lord that I'm seeing. I think particularly when we look at our liturgy that we've been doing, or cycle, whatever we call it, of following Jesus. Like our mission is to proclaim Christ in the everyday and the mundane things, right? That, that's that's what, one of the, our, our core um the core things that we we concern ourselves with and uh, and that really takes um into account the disciplines that we are doing every day so things like you know the becoming like jesus being with jesus doing what jesus did those cycles the lamenting fasting we've heard this from the others that have shared uh the silence and solitude practice prayer of examine um hearing god all those disciplines we are developing i think that they have really borne a lot of fruit in, in our individual lives i know in rgc i'm seeing it uh, as well. So just an encouragement to you all that uh, to continue doing that, um, especially I think with the pandemic, we can no longer rely on big events. It's just not going to happen. And so I think it was just a wonderful mercy and grace that uh, 
our body was already working on these types of practices before the pandemic. How could we have, at least in my mind, I don't know how we would have um, fared through this this time when we had to be in smaller groups, when we had to focus on uh, who Jesus is and listening to him, apart maybe from the broader, more extravagant gatherings in person and big events. We need to be able to have practices and disciplines uh, to follow Jesus outside of those um, events. And, I, and so I'm just really grateful and glad that we, we have spent that time doing those things. Uh, we've also, even during the midst of the pandemic, what we've, uh, we've uh, when working in solidarity with our global church, we had Stephen, the Rungaiuses were here today. We've got Ty and others, uh, who, Ty Martin, who have uh, left our local body, but we are supporting them globally. Um, we are working with, uh, you know, the racial reconciliation, reconciliation group um, and just learning to uh, what does it mean to live in solidarity with our, our brothers and sisters of color um, and and kind of diving into that asking questions educating ourselves I think there's a lot of good work that we are seeing in this last year and that happened like mostly during the pandemic um, and even the growth of our little ones um, I've been in, incredibly encouraged to in this last year we are starting off the beginning of our gatherings for the most part um, start with a a young child, or uh, you know, some of them are no longer so young anymore. Um, reading the Word of God over us, uh, and just to hear their voices, to see their growth, not just in their ability to read and speak in front of people, which is a big deal for, I think, a kid, but um, to know that they are not a lesser part of our body; they are an equal an important member uh, of our faith family. I, I think that that's been a great encouragement uh, to me and to the whole church. And then a, really a challenge that I heard from uh, the letter uh, today, just, and it really, Jeremy, you ended on this, but um, you know, as, as Christ said, just as, um, yeah, just as we have had growth um, in, in our faith and our collective work over, over this period, um, we need to hold fast uh, until Christ returns, and I, you know, hold fast to that, that patient endurance that I think uh, Ryan spoke of a few weeks ago as well. Um, I, I, it's supposed to be an encouragement, I think, but I think it is a little bit of a challenge, uh, just because um, this is a discipline that requires continued day in and day out exercise and working to be with the Lord, which is why, obviously, why we do the cycles of be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. Um, it's hard. It's especially as we come out of this period of uh, uh, less and being uh, mostly by ourselves and, and less group things, as we come into out of this pandemic, there's going to be uh, temptation, not even bad temptation, but there's going to be just a, f a desire to get out and do things. And, um, and there's going to be more things that we can do, which is, means we have to make choices. We have to choose um, are we going to uh, fill up our lives with um, things outside of Jesus, or are we going to fill up our lives with Jesus as well? I think a lot of those things are good, but if it's the only thing we are um, doing is going out to dinner because we haven't in forever and going to concerts and kids' sporting events and all this stuff, and we are forgetting uh, our first love, we are forgetting what we were doing uh, all this time, I, I think it's going to be a challenge. And so my exhortation and, and, and um, challenge to our body is to, to hold fast, to do what uh, we have been doing, um, and be wary of tolerating um, things that uh, maybe we, we wouldn't even consider bad, like um, you know having something to do every night. Maybe not 
terrible. We haven't done it in a long time. Uh, but uh, just be aware of that because I think it'll ha it'll happen fast. You know, if you look at these letters, clearly um, there is a way to. It's not guaranteed. Our 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 conquering isn't guaranteed. We need to to, to hold fast. And so that's my encouragement to you guys to keep following Jesus, keep being like Him, keep uh, becoming like Jesus, keep doing what He does, and uh, and it is my prayer and, and hope and belief that if we continue on this path, then we will. Uh, receive Jesus' promise. We will conquer. Uh, we will share in his authority and his glory. Um, so thank you uh, for uh, listening to that. And just I hope that that uh, encouraged you. Um, the next thing we're going to do is, in response to, to this is we're going to take communion. So if you are uh, here, uh, there's communion in front of you. If you're playing at home, you need to get your own uh, communion, bring your own communion. <laughs> um, but we're going to stand now, um, and we're going to read um, a response uh, same as always, I will read, and then the uh, yellow or bolded uh, text, if you'll read along with me. Father God, we stand before you in humble adoration as we set our face to the tasks and interests of another week and season as Jesus' church. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone in our own strength alone, but that at all times, we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace, and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life run the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, Priest and Friend, Jesus Christ, who for our sake became flesh and tasted all the different challenges of daily living, as well as the end we, no longer, uh, we need no longer fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and prophetesses, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear departed friends and family who have shown us your way. As we remember them, we bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O oh Father, that you have called us to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go, cheering us in loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation, and encouraging us to act in love and justice. O oh Lord Jesus Christ, you called the disciples to shine as lights in a dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weaknesses of which we are guilty. We, who in this generation represent your church of the world, we, as Christ City Church, especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray, the feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us live equal in measure to love received, following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed, such as we. Let the strength of your spirit, O Jesus, be in us all, to share the world's suffering and redress its wrongs in the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live. Amen.
done, we'll, cont- uh, we'll end with a reading from Jude. Let this serve as our benediction and our prayer for the coming week. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Keep you from stumbling on that firm foundation. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. May that be our lives this week, before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, We'll see you next Sunday, if not sooner.